0: Hello, I'm Denny Somak, and this is The Rock Podcast. And on today's show, i got a a guest that I've been looking forward to having on for some time. He's a Rock and Roll uh, Hall of Fame uh, inductee. His name is Richie Foray. You know him as one of the founding members of the great band Buffalo Springfield. Also the band Poco. Uh, Later, he had a band called Souther Hillman and Foray. Uh, some solo albums, a bunch of different things. He's got a new album out called In the Country, where he does his own interpretations of a lot of uh, uh, country songs. And he's uh, working on a documentary. We'll talk about all that and a bunch of other things. So let me welcome to the Brock Podcast, Richie Ferre. Hi, Richie. Good morning. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. I assume you're in Colorado. I am in a beautiful Colorado this morning. <laughs> okay, I was just there a few weeks ago myself, so. Oh, cool. Uh, saw your exhibit in the uh, Colorado uh, Hall of Fame at Red Rocks, so.
1: Uh, yeah, that was, uh, I, and I guess they've made some changes to that, because we have a new one now that's going up out in Nashville. Oh, great. Uh, at, the end of, at the end of September, they're doing a, um, um, uh, uh, a display on Country Rock, and so. Uh. Got a lot of stuff out there now, a nudie suit and my 355 Gibson and a bunch of other
0: things. (laughs) Okay. Richie, you're a, a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You're now in the Country Music Hall of Fame and or the colorado hall of fame colorado are you in the country music hall of fame too no not in the country music hall of fame so you need one more to be the trifecta right
1: i need one more to be the trifecta i after 50 years
0: of waiting i finally made it on the grand old opera stage so who knows what might happen (laughs) i was just going to ask you uh i know that was recently in june what was that like oh it was it was just really precious i i I mean, truthfully, truthfully, i had been waiting
1: to do that ever since I started POCO way back when and never had the opportunity. And uh, we were out in Nashville and uh, John Barry's manager, Brian Smith, uh, said, what, you have not ever been at the Grand Old Opry? And he said, we got to fix that. And so uh, Brian, Brian got it all organized and away we went. And it was it was really tremendous, I think, from. Looking off on the side and then seeing that circle that they took out of the Ryman, you know, and and, and you got to go back years and just think, you know, who stood on that stage, right? you know, in that spot. And of course, that uh, that I mean, I'm going to be standing in that spot in just a few minutes, along with the rest of the people, you know. So
0: it, it was really an honor, really, really an honor. Great. So uh, the last album that you did before this, I believe, was the live Delivering Again, correct? Uh, yes, it was. The the last, that was the last album that I, yeah, that was the live one. Then the the last studio was Hand in Hand. Okay. So how did you uh, enjoy doing that delivering again? You did that at what, the Troubadour? Yeah, it was at the Troubadour and it
1: it was a challenge. And at first I was wondering, you know, uh, were we going to be able to really get it done? And then I got to thinking all of the songs that are on that particular album, uh, all but three of them. At some point in time in the last several years, I've played all those songs in the set. So I figured, OK, this isn't going to be that hard for me. And so once we started the rehearsals with my band, you know, it uh, it really seemed
0: uh, I, it just had a flow to it and it worked out real easy. OK, so the original uh, Deliverant is considered one of the best live albums. What do you remember about that? Was that it? Uh, where was that recorded? Was that, that was it? recorded at, uh, uh, let's see, uh, the
1: uh, New York, wasn't it? Yeah, it was New York at the the Felt Forum and then at the back, I think at the Back Bay Theater in Boston. We recorded at two separate places. I'm sorry, I was just kind of, I couldn't get the forum
0: out. (laughs) What do you remember about that night or those nights when you were recording that original one?
1: Well, you know, we were excited, but I think there was some mixed emotions that were going on at the same time because we knew Jimmy Messina was going to be leaving the band and Paul Cotton was going to be joining the band. But nevertheless, um, it it was something that was very special and we needed a project at that time. Uh, There were some songs that actually were never really studio recorded that were uh, on that particular album as well. And so uh, it was was definitely a good project to, to, to make the transition from Jimmy to Paul. And moving on forward through that. But it was it was it was a lot of fun to be able to make that that project and to have it recognized as a, uh, you know, as well received as a live recording at that time. Uh, it was thumbs up.
0: <laughs> it's on a lot of people's uh, top 20 list of great uh, live recordings. Isn't that awesome, shows? man. That, that, that really touches my heart, too. You know, that's really special. OK, so when you recorded the uh, the latest version at the mm-hmm. Troubadour, were there particular people in the audience that you had invited? Were there any? Tell me about what that audience was like. Well, the audience was tremendous uh, and I hadn't been in the Troubadour for for some
1: time. And to go in there, it, it, it is not a very big room <laughs> and it was it was that was one of the first things that hit me but they also had removed all of the all of the table and chairs from the from the floor and so it was jam packed i mean there was no social distancing at the, at, that, at that particular uh, show that night and uh, it, it was really special um, I, I will tell you, we had invited everyone that was around still to be a part of it. We invited Jimmy, we in, invited Rusty Young, and, uh, and that, you know, they, for whatever reason, they couldn't be there. Uh, Randy Meisner did come, yeah. as did my good friend Timothy B. Schmidt, who
0: actually uh, did sing with us on, on one of his songs. Clear up something for me, because uh, sure. we know now when you did the reformed Poco album that Randy Meisner was an original member, but he's not on the first album. What's the story behind that? Well, you know what? There,
1: there was just a lot of stuff that was going on, and there's too many stories to really determine. I can tell you what I know from my perspective. Um, when you're in the studio, it—I it, mean, you need you need to be focused, right. and Randy wanted to be in the studio when Jimmy was mixing the record. And he he did not really, it didn't settle well with him that he could that Jimmy asked him not to be in the studio at that time. Now, some say that I asked him not to be in the studio at that time. I don't know who asked him not to be in right. the studio, but what we wanted to do, was we wanted to get the best mixes possible and everybody then was going to be able to have their input. And, and, you know, we would go back in and, and, you know, try to tweak what we could to to satisfy, you know, whatever um, questions or or thoughts that somebody had on on the record. But Randy uh, he didn't want to do that and then decided to leave. And you know what, that's the, I mean, the rest of it's history. And we're
0: kids back then, you know, we don't know a lot about what's going on in life. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, In the Country, tell me uh, about uh, what uh, decided the song selections. Okay, well, after, we,
1: you know, after, after Val Goray, who uh, produced the record, uh, who, produced it, who produced my 1979 I Still Have Dreams record and, and is a dear friend from clear back to Buffalo Springfield days. So, mm-hmm. uh, good relationship I have with Val. Um, you know, when we finally settled on the, on the direction that we wanted to go, because I didn't know how far back when he said, do you want to do covers of of iconic country hits? I didn't know how far back. So we had to, first of all, determine that. Well, what really settled it for me was the very first song on his list was the very first song on my list of songs that if I ever got to do an album, I didn't care if it was a country album or not a country album. uh, The very first song on his list was, was the very first song on my list. And it was a song by John Barry called Your Love Amazes Me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd heard that song when I was up in Montana fishing and the radio was going in and out, driving to another spot. And I, I came home back to Denver and called the radio station and tried to figure out who this was because the, the, the melody was great. What I could catch, the lyrics were great, but it was that voice. John has one of the greatest voices, uh, you know, of all time. And I just loved it. <laughs>
0: So uh, were you anticipating any really old, old classic country or like? Not really. Nothing like that then?
1: No, we went back to, you know, I think the the 80s or 90s. And um, then I picked uh, Lonesome Town because of the influence that Ricky Nelson had on me. I could not wait for him to come on at the end of Ozzy and Harriet and play his song, you know, and. And there was one song in particular, he was singing bebop baby over a baby crib. And uh, by the time it hit the third verse, he was at the high school gym auditorium. And man, it was like, oh, my. I mean, the transition was like,
0: uh, I got to do this. This is what I want to do. Now, you're obviously one of the founders of the country rock thing. But a lot of people say that Ricky Nelson and the Stone uh, Country Band was Uh really the beginning of country rock. Talk about that. Well, you know, listen, there,
1: there's a lot of people that say, OK, it was the Flying Burrito Brothers. Well, you know, Chris, Chris Hillman would tell you, you know, we were a country band. We played in all the country dives around Los Angeles. We weren't a country rock band. We were a country band. Then people would say, well, it was the birds, you know, and the birds were doing, you know, Sweetheart of the Rodeo around the same time that Picking Up the Pieces came around. Uh, the Stone Canyon Band came after Hoko. You know, and so uh, you know who knows who was at the start. There were several of us that were in the beginnings of this. Was something very definitely that Jimmy Messina and I had had envisioned in our mind when Buffalo Springfield broke up. Jimmy was our last bass player, and we we had a we we, we uh, formed a great friendship, and we decided, hey, we're going to carry this on. And uh, after we recorded Kind Woman and put uh, put Rusty on it uh, for the. Uh, um uh, last time around album we were we were satisfied this is a direction that we want to go so you can go back as far as 1960 what eight there for that and as far as the birds around the same time um, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly when the Stone Canyon band got started, but it would have had to have been after, uh, after Poco because Randy left that Poco to go into the, uh, you know, start that up with Ricky's. So who knows? And, and it's not, it's really not, there were several of us that were really trying to, or had this vision mm-hmm. to bring back music. I mean, my roots would go all the way back to Carl Perkins, uh, uh, Gene Vincent, Uh, Eddie Cochran, those type of guys, Buddy Holly. uh, So, I mean, we were revitalizing things (laughs) really, you know, something that was in my heart from a long time ago.
0: So what's the uh, what's the genesis behind doing Take Me Home Country Roads? Just a great Colorado song or. Well, it is. But, you know, that was Val's pick. That was on Val's pick. It wasn't mine.
1: Uh, to be really honest with you, John Denver went right over my head until he was inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. And they asked me to sing a song. And uh, my my friend Scott and, and my uh, daughter Jesse and I we sang uh, Wild Montana Skies as he's being inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. Right. But uh, it was then that I just had gone over so many of his songs and was listening to just how really talented and great this guy was i mean i was i guess i was so involved in what poco was doing at the time that i missed a lot of john denver
0: mm, okay and so it was what, Val's. it was Val's choice so that okay. was, that song was his what about walking into memphis Because that, that that's doesn't seem like a, something that you'd cover, but you did a great version of it.
1: Well, that was my song. Uh, that was one that I, I wanted to do. And, you know, Val said, yeah, this isn't a country song, but it's such a great song. How do we put it on the record? And came up with the idea, you know, with Mark. It's a um, it was so piano driven because he's particularly a, a piano player, a keyboard player. And so with us, we said, let's change these these hooky piano lines into guitar lines. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did to kind of make it fit onto uh, onto this particular record. And I'm so glad we did. I, I, I really hope that some of these people that. You know this 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 song has been covered by so many people. I had no idea at the time that I said, "Hey, let's do this one." I had no idea, and and I just hope that you know when Mark
0: hears it, he says, "Man, that was a good that was a good cover of my song, man." I really hope you enjoy it. <laughs> so, are you uh, out touring now behind this, or is that coming up? I mean, I know you did that. You told us about the Country Music Hall of Fame, but uh, or the Grand Old Opry. What, what are your immediate plans now to support this record? Well, we did
1: we did a couple shows, one in New York and. one in Nashville at the city wineries, we had some other scheduled and conflict, uh, um, you know, made it so I couldn't get back to Boston, I couldn't get back to, uh, uh, to the Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia area. Conflicts just right. arose. Uh, this is a difficult time to, I mean, you know, things are. <sighs> with this whole, I mean, the record is three years old. Mm. I mean, we recorded it in November of 19, uh 19, 2019 I'm <laughs> going way back now. Yeah. yeah. 2019. So, I mean, but so much happened with COVID that sent things into a tailspin and with the things that are going on now, it's very difficult. I am doing some shows um but they're they're spotted and far and few between and uh, it's being able to to speak with you and and get the message out that people will you know the music business has changed so much so you know with this interview you'll
0: it'll probably help me get it out uh you know to some people where i could never go well i hope so by the way i've seen you a number of times over the years uh i saw you in poco obviously a couple of times but i saw you uh, when the Souther Hillman Foray band came out, you played the Bijou Cafe in Philly. I was living in Philly at the time. Okay, and I love that record. Fallen in Love, oh, great. That was a great, uh, great tour. And then I saw you a few years ago in Philly again at the World Cafe. Sure, uh, I'm look. I'm living in Florida now, so I'm hoping you'll get down this way at some point oh, so I can you. see you again. But you always put on a great show, uh, always, no matter who's with you and in, in what band. Well, I, I've, you know, I,
1: I, I've been very blessed to have really great musicians with me and surround myself with great musicians. They help me bring the music alive. And I have a great group of guys that, uh, like I say, you know, traveling is hard because this group of guys are from uh, San Diego. And so to try to get them to Florida or wherever, you know, and and then I got my daughter and and, uh, and friend here that also play in the band. So it, it's difficult. But I've always surrounded myself with a band that just really energizes me. And this group of guys from San Diego, uh, great. I mean, if I, I tell you a story about them. I don't know if we'd have time for it. But I was yeah. doing a house How concert. much time to- as you want to give me, we have. I was doing a house concert. And uh, this friend of mine, he he wrote to me and he said, hey, you know, there's this band that's going to open up for you at this house concert. And they are great. And they want to they want to back you up. I No, 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 no. My songs are not three chord blues songs. You know, let's just say, no, they won't do it. Well, uh, it, it got postponed and then started up again. And the same guy called again. And so he said, look, here's a list of songs that they already know. And so. I added three or four songs to them. And I said, what are they going to do? Fire me and Jesse and and, uh, and Dan when we get out there. So we had, and boy, I'll tell you what, they were so great on the song. We've never played. I mean, we were here at this house concert and it was kind of casual. And they were absolutely tremendous. And so I've taken them back to New York. I've taken them back to um, uh, the, the New Jersey area, back to the East Coast to play with me. And they have—I will—I got to tell you—they've revitalized this old man to be able to just really get
0: out there and and, and do it again. It's it's fun. So uh, Sally Salih and Foray were a great band. What was the reason that it didn't work? I think you did what two, three albums? We did two. Uh, we
1: had uh, obviously we had more of a commitment. And uh, each one of us, I think, fulfilled our commitment to uh, to asylum records in different ways. But uh, you know, there were so many things going on. People again want to create a scenario that that you know it, it's just a figment of people's imaginations that we weren't getting along. We got along fine. There were things going on behind the scenes in my life that I had no idea was happening at the time, and that's what was driving me away from actually continuing on. My wife and I, who had been married for seven years, were on the verge of divorce. Mm. And that obviously took priority in my life. We've been married for 55 years now. So, so uh, you know what I, that was, that was really what drove me, but people would like, you know, they want to create, they want to create drama where there is no drama. You know JD came by the studio I have to admit I haven't seen hadn't seen JD in a long time but when we were recording in the country he came by the studio and I mean, it was just it was just the greatest little reunion that we had. We talked, and and it, it was so special. Chris and JD had talked maybe about a, three or four years earlier, that maybe about five years earlier than that, to maybe do something again. And you know, JD was working on the Nashville um, movie or TV show, and so he was he was busy. Chris was doing his thing. Uh, Chris and I worked together, and we are dear friends, you know, so I mean, for people that want to create some scenario, you know it's 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 not true. you know, it's just there were things going on in life that directed what we were doing and and my marriage was more important to me than than playing music with anybody. I couldn't help
0: it, you know <laughs> So what's the secret to a fifty plus year marriage? Yes, dear. Particularly in, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the, particularly in this business.
1: No, no, right? no, no. You know what? Uh, just learn to communicate. I think so often communication is the bottom line uh, for whatever, w- whenever things kind of dissolve, there has been a lack of communication somewhere, whether it's in business, where it's whether in any aspect of life, but in a marriage in particular, you have to communicate. And you know what? as, as the scripture says, you know, don't let the sun go down on your differences, you know, make sure that you, you know, get those things taken care of before you let the sun go down every night. So, um, you know, and, and I just, uh, I mean, we've been, I've been blessed. There's no doubt about it, man. I mean, not only do I have, you know, a wife of 55 years, I have four daughters, three great grand, uh, three great, uh, son-in-laws and 13 grandkids. So, I mean, life's good, man. <laughs> How many of your kids are doing music? You know, Jessie's the only one. She's my baby. And uh, she has been going out and, and, and doing different shows with me for probably, I've been really blessed to have her because I don't think I could really even want to do a show without her. Uh, but she's been doing things with me for probably the last 15 years. Her husband's just been terrific because she has four daughters of her own. Mm. And so for her to just come out and have her husband, you know, be mom and dad at the same time, Tom's been just a great blessing. But Jessie's the only one that really... Um, really had a had any we, we actually recorded a record uh, with her, and uh, recorded six six songs in Nashville, um, uh, and uh, then she had to make a decision. Do you is this what I want to do? Do I want to pursue this career or have a family? And the next thing you knew, she she was pregnant with her first daughter. So we knew where that was going. But she's been she's been with me every step of the way for the last I don't know probably fifteen years. She goes out with me. Any uh, musical inklings from the grandchildren? I'm trying to see. Yes, one of them. Oh, golly, this just happened last week. We were up uh, up a uh, little Took the kids out for a little trip up to Netherland. And uh, Tom said, hey, uh, one of my one of my kids, one of my grandkids had written this song. And I listened to the song. And I got to tell you, there's some talent there. She's like nine years old. And, and I mean, it was it was a really good song. One of the other kids, uh, I don't think I heard her sing, but she's playing violin and playing piano. So there is some music coming out of Jesse's family. But this one song that Little Pepper wrote was something else. It was great.
0: <laughs> talk to me about how your spiritual side of your life has affected it. Uh, there, some people may not know you You had a congregation in in Colorado. What? what uh-huh. Tell me about, talk about that a little bit.
1: Well, um, you know, when when Nancy and I were going through that uh, situation I talked about with Souther hillman uh, you know, Al Perkins, who I didn't want in the band of SHF at all, um, simply because he had a little fish sticker on his guitar that said, Jesus is Lord. I said, I don't want you in the band. Well, was in the band, uh, and Chris wanted him and, and suggested him, and he was right. And Al led me to the Lord. Um, you know, um, the, the next thing I did, I started a little home Bible study and, and, uh, that Bible study, uh, went into a, a, developed into a little church. And so we had a little church back here in the Boulder, Denver area for 35 years. And, um, it, it was, uh, it was something that I had no idea. Everything yep. that we've done, we've okay. done for others and it's time now to maybe really focus on ourselves. And so I still am in the ministry for sure. Cause you never leave the ministry, right? And, uh, um, you know, so I, I, I still serve, I minister at the church uh, sometimes that we're going to, but we aren't tied down as we were, you know, for 35 years straight. You know, when I used to take a little vacation, my vacation at the church thought I was going out and playing music
0: someplace, you know. <laughs> so I, I got to ask you, this is maybe a weird question, but when you were doing that, there had to be uh-huh. some people that would come to, you know, one of your, uh, uh, one, one of your services I go, wait a minute. I know that guy. Isn't he the guy? (laughs) What happened? What what do people? Well, well, sure. People would
1: come and they would, they would know my history, my background. I mean, they would, you know, I mean, out here on the internet, whatever people know what's going on in your life. You know, even way back when I'm not sure 35 years ago, we didn't have this, but you know, people would come and and they would, they would remember me from uh, uh, you know, from musical days. And, and it wasn't, well, why are you doing this? You know, I mean, although I did have a guy, a good friend of mine, Peter Nobler, who wrote for Crawdaddy magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he said, I mean, he, he asked me to write a, a testimony. He had a bunch of people write a testimony of what it meant to change, th- to become 30. And it was my whole testimony of my, of my, you know, tra- uh, salvation. And he said, I can't print that. That's the end of your career. <laughs> you know, and I said, well, that's what, that's what happened at 30, you know? So he went ahead and printed it. So, I mean, people, People knew I became a believer and became a Christian and people would come and I don't think anyone, you know, that came to church was saying, well, that was a lot of that was stupid, you know. But they could I mean if you're coming to church, mostly people are coming because they wanna, you know, they they they're coming to church. They're on vacation and they come to church and visit you.
0: So everybody's going to know all this stuff when this documentary comes out. Tell me what stage this is in. I know you're you're running a campaign. How long, How far along are you? Do you have any anticipated timeline? Yes, uh, the, the anticipated timeline is
1: definitely early next year. So early twenty twenty three. We have a few interviews that we're still trying to complete. Um, Stephen and Neil and I have tried to get together twice now. And, uh, Stephen got the big C about two weeks ago when I was in California and, and um, he couldn't get together to do an interview in a room of people. We had to have the mask on and the whole deal. And so right. I'm hoping the third time is a charm. That's the main one that we're, that we're really still after to get Stephen and Neil and me together, Stephen and, and I have done one. Um, via Zoom like this when uh, Neil couldn't make the first one. And so what we want to do is we just want to get us all in the same room. But uh, basically, you know, it's, it's, it's done, uh, if, except for a few minor things like that. I think that's the main thing. Some people are coming up here at the end of August, and we're shooting a few more, um, um, uh, you know, series from, uh, from that uh, time that they're here. And uh, that'll probably tie it up. You know, there's a few in- interviews if they want to get out here, and in- some things that I still need to, you know, say on the on the interview. The interview is going to be very uh, straightforward. It's not going to be a pat on the back, hey man, a fluff, a-, a fluff piece. You know, I mean, people that maybe I've had difficulties with or differences with, they who wanted to be interviewed, would- were interviewed, and they were able to-, to talk. You know, so I mean, it's a whole life story, though, David uh, Stone and. Denny Klein felt like it was something worthy of of them putting a the time and effort into. And so it's been a it's been a challenge again. When COVID hit, it threw everything into into the background. So it was uh, it, it was hard getting some of it done. But it's 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 almost it's almost, I'd say, wrapped up in, in, in the final production stages, except for a few interviews now.
0: Now, uh, I assume that there's performance video in this. Does it go all the way mm-hmm. back to the Agogo Singers? Uh, it'll go all the way back to when I was born. Okay. <laughs> so it,
1: it's a whole, it's the whole story. And I, here I am, and I'm thinking, well, I hope I'm
0: alive to see this uh, documentary on me. <laughs> what other uh, early, uh, obviously there'll be some Buffalo Springfield, some Poco. What mm-hmm. else will be in it performance wise? I mean, and how hard was it to, to find all this stuff? Were well, you relying on fans Denny, or? David and Denny have done all the research. So they found all
1: the, all the, uh, the things that they have wanted as far as that kind of, um, uh, you know, presentation is, is on the show, as far as, you know, that kind of stuff. They, they, they have found the, um, the concerts and stuff that they feel are significant uh, for, the, for, the, uh, for the production.
0: Okay. And so it's pretty much in their hands. Now, people know that, uh, what was it, about 10 years ago, Buffalo Springfield did a sort of a reformed to do some shows. Why didn't that continue? Well, (laughs) I mean, you know, people were anticipating like, whoa, this is going to be great. This is one of those reunions that can work. I think so. Uh,
1: There were a lot of people and there were a lot of people that were disappointed at the same time who didn't come to California or to Bonnaroo because they figured, you know, that we we had a 30 day tour. That's I, I was told. By Stephen's uh, or by Neil's manager, you have to go on the and do these interviews and tell everybody what we're doing because, well, Neil wasn't going to do it. Stephen wasn't going to do it. And so I was the only one. And so that's what I was told to do. And, you know, as far as I was concerned, we were doing it. Till I was doing an interview with Stephen at Bonnaroo and it, it came out. and Stephen looked at me and said, Oh man, they're gonna have us in wheelchairs if we do that, or whatever. I don't know, but um, you know, it, it was a strange event. Um, you know, every after every show that we did, um, from the bridge school to the six shows we did in uh, California after that to Bonner uh, up, up to Bonnaroo, every I mean, it was just i don't know how to explain it it was great everybody got together after the shows we got together we talked we kind of unwound together after bonnaroo i never saw another person i never saw i never saw another person after that
0: so who knows (laughs) i'm sure you get asked this all to any chance that that could be revived even if it's a for a one-off i don't think so no okay is there any any footage or recordings that were done during
1: that everything was recorded Everything was recorded, and it was multi-camera and everything else. So that's all in Neil's. That's all in Neil's uh, you know, under Neil's auspices,
0: I guess. <laughs> so I, I, I guess you were a little bit disappointed that it didn't continue.
1: Well, you know, I, th- I think. Listen, I mean, everybody has their stuff, and it, I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't like a crisis moment. Oh golly, you know, I'd, I'd set everything. Now some people did set things aside, thinking that we were going to do these tours. And they, I mean, they, they turned down some, um, you know, Joey and, uh, and, and Rick turned down stuff because they thought we are going to do our stuff. And then when it didn't happen, it was kind of like a, a blow to them. But, um, you know, it, it's like until, until it's happening, I'm not counting on anything, you know, it's like, that was that. And, uh, I, I, it was, it was fun, I thought we had a great time, we, we tried to do the same thing back in the 80s, and it was a train wreck, it was like, man, forget it, this is never, ever gonna work, and so when it came about to do it again, about, what, 10, 15 years ago, uh, I mean, and, and that seems like, whew, it seems like just yesterday that we might have done that, and it's been ten or, and, you know, and add that up, and you can see why it might not really happen again, a lot happens to people in, in 10 to 15 years, but, uh, so I I don't I I I don't foresee anything like that happening, but boy, when we got together this last time, it was like a hand in glove. It was like so easy, it was so smooth, it just like bingo. It was that was it.
0: Okay. So if people want to get more information on the doc or want to donate and get uh-huh. involved, they go to your website. Yeah, richiefure.com. That's R-I-C-H-I-E-F-U-R-A-Y. Not no T
1: in there. Right. <laughs> right.
0: Now, what did you think of, I know it was a while ago, but what did you think of the the box set that Buffalo Sprinkled that Atlantic put out years ago with all that unreleased <laughs> stuff? Were you consulting? Oh, well, I, it was like
1: one of those, I was like the Randy Meisner of the uh, of that, you know. Uh, Neil invited me out to his uh, ranch up in Northern California and, uh, you know, listened to it. And I, I of course, had my uh, options to, you know, put in, uh, my, my input. I listened to it and it sounded like, okay, this sounds pretty good. You've done a good job. Um, he did not feel like one song should be on the album. Uh, some of the people, uh, some people did. I was pretty much, um, uh, it, it was immaterial to me in the hour of not quite rain, you know, which was the KHJ, the guys are going to write a song and it's going to be a big hit. AM. well, you couldn't write an AM uh, musical song around that. And uh, so uh, that was the only thing that, that maybe would have been in question, but I thought it sounded okay, but it was just kind of amazing. Here we are, man, we're, we're redoing these 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 same three. We only did three albums. Right. And, and, and only one of them was the original band, that first right. one. After that, it started to, you know, break around. Oh, I'm going to have this guy come in and play. And then by the time the third one, last time around, while well, I was like, uh, it was a difficult project to get uh, get an album out.
0: <laughs> now, who who let's talk a little bit about Buffalo Springfield. Who who decided who would do what? For instance, why did you sing a Clancy and not Neil? You know what? I'm not sure. I know that Neil taught me that song when he
1: came down. I was living, I was actually living uh, in Connecticut, but we had an apartment on Thompson Street, and uh, Stephen had had left. And to go to California and met, met Neil and told him that hey, there's an apartment down there that you can use as a as a go-to house. He came down to pedal some songs. And uh, I was I was coming back and forth from working my job up at Pratt and Whitney Aircraft, and and uh, he taught me. Nowadays, Clancy can't even sing. So when I got a hold of Stephen after Graham Parsons had brought the Birds' first record up to me at when I was working up at Pratt and Whitney, and said, "I'm done. I got to get out of here and got to get to California see what Stephen's doing," Um, uh, I, I taught Stephen what I knew of Clancy and so when we played when we met Neil and Bruce on that famous story on Sunset Boulevard you know took them back to our little apartment and played the song you know that might have had some you know um significance in me singing the song I don't know I did sing a few of his songs for some reason you know I sang Flying on the Ground is wrong do I have to come right out and say it and Clancy on the first record and um I know I was mainly um uh, in the band as 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 a singer at the time, Stephen said, "Hey, I got a whole band together. All I need needs another singer. Come on out." Well, it was me and Stephen when I got out there. It was just the two of us, so there was mm-hmm. no band. But um, uh, you know, that's what my 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 focus was in the band. So maybe that's I wasn't writing any songs that actually got put on the first record. And so maybe they
0: felt, well, we got to give him some songs. To thing. And <laughs> what What did you think when you first uh, heard uh, Neil play that song to you? Oh, I loved it, but
1: I do believe that it was a mistake to release it as the first Buffalo Springfield single.
0: Mm.
1: I thought the first Buffalo Springfield single should have been, do I have to come right out and say it? I think that had more accessibility to, you know, it was a love song. It was simple. It was really, uh, Clancy was a little, it was a little strange for people. Not only was it, a, was it an interesting um, lyrical line, people still ask me to this day, what's that song about? I don't know. Ask Neil. um but do i have to come right out and say it i mean it was you can apply that song to so many little love scenarios in people's lives and i thought that should have been the first single so um you know i i mean i love the song when i first heard it it was like wow this is so cool going from three four time to four four time and oh man it was like a cool song and i taught it to Stephen when or at least we I remember it as teaching it basically to him. He may have heard it, but not have. I had it on tape somewhere. And that's how I really learned the song.
0: (laughs) So for those that don't know, uh, for what it's worth, was not on the first album. You had a song called Don't Scold Me, correct? Baby, Don't Scold Me. Yeah. So what happened between the time of finishing that album and uh, for, for what it's worth? Well, uh, what what happened was
1: there was a, a, a major event that took uh, place at the corner of Laurel Canyon, Sunset Boulevard, and La Cienega in a place called uh, um, uh, uh, Pandora. Thank you, honey. Pandora's box. <laughs> My wife, just, she heard me. And um, th- that's what happened. And Stephen, you know, saw what was going on there. And wrote the song. Hey, there's something happening here. What it is it ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over. There. And so he wrote the song. But what happened was that the buffalo, the, the first record that we released on Atlantic did not satisfy what they thought the record should have done from the from the group from a group standpoint. And so we were quote unquote auditioning songs for Ahmed, who had Ahmed Erdigan, the president of Atlantic, who had come out to uh um, California to hear songs that we were going to do for our second album, and um, you know Stephen played songs, Neil played songs, and I even played a couple songs that I had written by then. And uh, as we're packing everything up, uh, Stephen, oh, I have another one for what it's worth. And he played that song, and Ahmed said, "That's a hit. We're doing it." And so we recorded the song, pulled the record back, took "Baby Don't scold Me Off," put "For What It's Worth" on the record, and. That's the history of that
0: one. <laughs> All right. So as I, as I told you, next year is the 75th anniversary of Atlantic Records. How did the Buffalo Springfield get on Atlantic? I really think that the, the, the initial um,
1: uh, way that we, that we made was through Charlie Green and Brian Stone, who were managing Sonny Sunny and Cher at the time, who were on APCO. And uh, they're the ones that introduced us to Ahmet, who heard us play at the Whiskey Go-Go, and uh, there were a lot of different record people that wanted us. But, um, you know, Ahmed made the offer and, and we, we felt that this was the place for us to go.
0: Tell me about Ahmed Erdogan. What, any, any recollections you have from the, those well, early days? And, and in general, it's because he's, he's a larger than life figure.
1: He absolutely is. And I did not know Ahmed that well. But I can tell you that when when he had to make some announcement that Buffalo Springfield was breaking up and there were tears in his eyes, says how much he meant or how much Buffalo Springfield meant to him and how much, you know, I mean, the, the, the feelings of us back and forth. I, I, I really liked Ahmed. Uh, every um, interaction that I had with him uh, was was. I, I can't think of one negative interaction I ever had with Ahmed Erdogan. He was he was really a very, very special guy. He loved the band. He supported the band. He did everything that he could to see that the band was successful. And um, I know that Stephen and Neil had uh, probably a closer relationships with Amit than I did. I did not have that close of a relationship, but I know he had a sincere love
0: for the band. But he, he wanted to sign Poco, too, didn't he? But there were some uh, legal things had to be worked out. Well, th- there were some things. Uh, I, I'm not sure how this
1: worked. I know Graham Nash was on Epic and Buffalo Springfield was on it. Edco and Graham and Stephen and, and David Crosby all got together and they had a band formed. And so at that point in time, um, you know, they tried to figure out how are we going to work this out? You know, that we that uh, Crosby still said, nice, can come together and, you know, Richie can go on and do his thing with Poco. And how it worked out was there was just a swap that was made. You know, I don't know. Um, Well, that's that's all I know. It's business
0: stuff. So it wasn't really. Yeah. yeah, Okay. Yeah. So uh, in your years in Poco, what were some of the highlights for you?
1: Well, obviously, one of the highlights in Poco was playing at Carnegie Hall, one of the first rock and roll bands to play at Carnegie Hall. I mean, that was just an absolute thrill. And, um, uh, you know, to have created a genre of music you know, that lives on to this day through numerous bands, I mean, the Eagles in particular, even though uh, you know, they went on to 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 really develop the sound a whole lot differently. I mean, Glenn Fry sat on my living room floor in 2300 Laurel Canyon Boulevard when I was rehearsing Poco, so there was something of significance there. But I I think I think playing Carnegie Hall, I think playing you know starting a genre of music, uh, Rusty Young, I really do believe, and I will say that he separated Poco uh, apart from every other three guitar band in Los Angeles. At the time, we were doing steel guitar because that he was such an innovator on that guitar, running it through a Leslie, uh, getting it down and on. on <laughs> we get it at Carnegie Hall, getting, turning the thing over and playing it, and almost lighting it on fire, you know. Um, but having having these guys in the band uh, as we created this music, you know, I think that has to be the the, the single most important thing in my mind that was in, in 1969 when when we were definitely on the ground floor no matter who you want to say started it we were there to start a genre of music that lives on
0: to this day has to be significant and what is it that uh, made you decide to leave poco i was dissatisfied with the fact that uh,
1: we couldn't get an am we couldn't get an am record And we thought that we had it with good feeling to know. And it was at the same time that Take It Easy was released. And uh, we're back east playing SUNY's State Universities at New York at (laughs) and listening on the radio. And there was Take It Easy. And and we I mean, we were searching for that hit record uh, that would launch us into that other genre, so to speak. And when that didn't happen and when Take It Easy came along, when that didn't happen, it was just I, I was I got dissatisfied and went to David Geffen. And he said, well, J.D. Souther and Chris Hillman are looking for something to do. Want to start another Crosby, Sills, and Nash? And I'm thinking, hey, are you kidding? I've been at this for six years, and that's all it takes is getting three guys together. And I will say about the SHF, man, what looked good on paper doesn't always translate into reality. I mean, David and Stephen and Graham got together together on a on a in a back porch and just were playing music and they, and they formed a friendship we were kind of put together in someone's imagination that we could just you know do what we did and it was a little bit different uh you know i go way back to when we started the interview you know i mean th- there's nothing uh, you know that we can say about stotherham and Fury, chris jd and myself you know that was that was like hindering it was just different and I had things going on in my life that didn't work, but it was, uh, that's how it got started. You know, I just got disillusioned with Poco.
0: Well, I don't have to tell you, right. you know, that, I mean, Poco was like godlike in the New York area because of people like Pete yeah. yeah, That was, I mean, you yeah. had a much bigger following uh, out of there. It was, it was yep. amazing. Absolutely. New
1: York and Boston. We sure had some fun. Yeah. <laughs> Charles yeah. Dara up in uh,
0: uh, up in Boston and Pete fornatel in New York, man, couldn't do any better. <laughs> What was it like for you uh, when you wrote the book, uh, the Buffalo Springfield book for what it's worth?
1: Well, you know, it was a lot of fun, a lot of reminiscing. John Einerson, great guy, uh, great historian. And, uh, it, it, was, it was fun for me. John came out and spent some time with me in Colorado. And what was really fun was the fact that he knew so, I mean, he would remind me of things that I didn't, that it was like, Oh gosh, I forgotten all about that, you know, but they were, they, they were true. He's such a great historian. And, uh, you know, as I as I would reminisce on some of the things and even today, you know, thinking back, man, it's been quite a journey. You know, I mean, it's it's been really a lot of fun to be to be have been involved from a little kid, you know, that all Ricky Nelson on Ozzie and Harriet to go to New York as a folk singer. Hook up with Stephen Stills, and then in Neil Young in California, and 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 to create a, a kind of music that people still look upon today with with admiration, you know, and thinking, man, this is a this is a great band. And then to have started a genre of music, man, I'm gonna tell you, it, it's been it's been a really fun and fine journey, man. Okay.
0: I want to uh, just, uh, we're going to wrap up in a little bit. I'd just like to ask you about a couple of specific songs, if you could just sure. talk about them in general. Uh-huh. Uh, first of all, a, a Child's Claim to Fame, uh-huh. Buffalo Springfield. <laughs> what do you want to say about that? You're laughing. So he, maybe this maybe this will sum it up. Um,
1: when, when Buffalo Springfield did their reunion several years ago, we were at Santa Barbara. And I got past that, do do And then somebody over on the left side to me said, Stop, stop the stop everything. Did you write that song about me? And of course, it was Neil Young right there in front of 5,000 people. So, uh, and I'm stammering and stammering because it caught me off guard, but uh, it was like, well, yeah, uh, maybe, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so it, it was, I think it was written because of frustration. You know, Buffalo Springfield was one step forward and two steps back because of two Canadians that uh, that I love dearly. You know, I still love Neil Man and I appreciate you know everything that he's done and 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 all. Uh, but it was it was difficult was he, I I don't think he ever wanted to be in a band. I always think he wanted to be a solo artist. So yeah, there you go, Child's claim to Fame. <laughs> okay, kind woman. Yeah. Tell me well, something. Uh. The, the the song actually came about after, you know, a song of Stevens that I just loved to sing from the first album called Sit Down, I Think I Love You. So I had these, this girl, this young lady, you know, that would come and stand at the foot of the whiskey uh, go-go stage. And I would just look and, and, and just, I was just, uh, I was overwhelmed with just uh, the, the, the beauty of this woman, you know, physically at the time, you know. And uh, she turned out to be my bride of 55 years. And so that was the song that I wrote, you know, for her.
0: Okay. Now, uh, originally, uh, you re recorded that uh, and got Neil to play on it because he didn't play on the original. What's what's the story yeah, behind he that? Didn't, he didn't play on the original Buffalo Springfield recording.
1: And there were several things that were going on at the time that I recorded it. Um, it was on my Heartbeat of Love record. And uh, I, I wanted to put the song in time because there's, there's, there's odd measures in the Buffalo Springfield and early Poco version of that. And I wanted to put it in time. And so when we recorded it in in Nashville, uh, I thought, well, you know what? I couldn't get him 40 years ago. Maybe I can get him on it now. And so I approached uh, Neil because that that album, I mean, I actually got Steven on it, Timothy's on it. There's so many people uh, on that particular record and all um, that uh, when I reached out to him, he was very agreeable to do it, but it took a year. It took a year of waiting. He, you know, he's just a busy guy way back then.
0: A good feeling to know.
1: Yep. Taking a walk on uh, one of my, uh, we lived further up the road here than I live now uh, in Colorado. And uh, it was out walking one day and, and just come home from a tour and, and you know sometimes when you're out just taking those walks uh you start getting you know either a a, a lyrical line or a musical line and it was
0: just a good feeling to know to be home you know (laughs) and you were you were sort of surprised that it really didn't do better than it because it sounds like a hit right out of the box everybody thought
1: it was we recorded it with jack richardson we had looked for a producer Uh, When Jimmy had decided to leave, we looked for a producer that had a history of, of, uh, of, um, of hits. I actually, uh, my first choice was Richie Podler, uh, Three Dog Night and Steppenwolf. And uh, I just really, SHF, you know, we recorded our first record with Richie, but when uh, uh, CBS uh, rejected Richie, we, um, uh, you know, went on the search and came and Jack Richardson, who was just a wonderful, wonderful guy to work with, because he, you know, he had, he had a string going on with a guess who of of, of hits and, and, and others. And uh, everybody, everybody thought, that's it. This is the song. This one's going to be the one.
0: And it didn't. It just mm. it just it just laid there for whatever reason. And that happens a lot in the music business. It does, man. It does. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I want to really thank you. Appreciate uh, you taking time and talking about all the different things and giving us some history and stuff. Uh, Like I said, I look forward to seeing you sometime in the future. Want to wish you a lot of luck with this record and anything you want to say to your, your longtime fans. Hey, it's just been a, like
1: I said, it's been a great journey, been able to make music and it's really blessed my heart to be able to, to know that there are fans out there and people out there that still enjoy, you know, the, the, the music that I make and, uh, And when we get a chance to see you, we'll shake hands and say howdy.
0: Okay. Thanks a lot. Again, Richie. You got it. Thank you. Have a good
1: day. Thank you, man. You too. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. That's our conversation with Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Richie Ferre. You can check out his uh, latest album, In the Country. And for more info on his documentary, go to richieferre.com. This is The Rock Podcast. I'm Denny Somak. Connect with us at therockpodcast.com our Facebook page, or you can email me at hello at therockpodcast.com. Goodbye for now.
2: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.